Hello and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, incapable of spelling words correctly Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, can spell most words swingle. Thanks, John. Now tell me, why do they call you incapable of spelling words correctly? <laughs> well, as, as the name would imply, the joke here is that I can't spell words and that you can spell words. So let's just move on quickly from this whole affair. And <laughs> no, say, well, I don't think we can get away because, John, I have to correct your misspellings on the show notes that I'm looking at right in front of me, right here. Oh, it's it's so it's so, so bad. So we're, we're not just going to sweep past this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the advantage of having things be recorded, is that you don't have to worry about if you're spelling it correctly, as long as you can pronounce it. Fair enough. But hey, let's move on to, we're talking about Hebrews today. And uh, Jeremy, why is the book of Hebrews so special to the two of us? Well, once upon a time, many, many years ago, in the far-off land of 2012... Uh, you and I were on an international Bible quiz team together, and I think a lot of the, the listeners probably know about Bible quizzing, or are Bible quizzers, or were Bible quizzers, but in 2012, we studied the book of Hebrews, as well as the book of uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. So Hebrews is a little bit near and dear to us, um, because we, I don't know, we, I mean, we went and kicked butt on Hebrews, so... <laughs> It's near and dear to my heart. When you say we went and kicked butt, Jeremy, exactly how well did we do at internationals in 2012? Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to brag or anything, but we did take first place. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we, so we love the book of Hebrews uh, because we all worked really, really hard that year and it paid off. Uh, and so it's just, it's, it's a good book and we love it a lot. Hebrews was kind to us that year. <laughs> very true. Very true. And now here we are, uh, something like eight years later, and we're talking about it like nerds. So not much has changed, even though we've gotten older. Yep. Still just as geeky about the scriptures. Maybe more so. Cut the chit chat. Let's crack open the word. All right, John. Well, in the intro, we mentioned that we were looking at Hebrews today. And in particular, we're going to look at a very famous verse from Hebrews, perhaps the most well-known verse among the quizzers who are studying Hebrews once again this year. And that's good old chapter 4, verse 12. I'm going to read it here in the ESV. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And now in this show, we try to put verses back into their original context. And I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who might already be wondering, well, how is that out of context? How do people misuse that verse? It seems rather straightforward, right? Um, the word of God is living and active. It's a sharp weapon. Um, the Bible talks elsewhere about the armor of God and, and the word of God being a sword that we can use to strike down our, our enemies. That's in Ephesians 6. And so I think I hear a lot of people use this verse um, kind of as this triumphalist uh, warfare type verse, like, oh, I'm going to go you know, destroy atheists and break them down with my word of God in my hand. And, you know, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And, uh, well, I wouldn't want to say that that is an inaccurate application of this verse, but I feel like there might be something a little more to the context here. And since it's such a well-known verse and uh, such a well-quoted verse among a lot of the Bible quizzers, I thought, let's take a closer look at this verse. It's time for the meat. So yeah, let's put this verse back into context. But first, let's start with some kind of initial observations here. Uh, so the first thing to point out is that this verse starts with the word for, 
which means that it's somehow trying to extend or illustrate the argument that comes uh, from the previous verses. This is essentially the idea that the context actually is important, and the verse tells you that the context is important. So, you know, in usually in situations like this, you can just back up a few verses and get everything cleared up. But the book of Hebrews is actually a, a very long building and sometimes sprawling argument that begins way before 412. Just to show you what I mean, literally every single verse in chapter 4 begins with some kind of connecting phrase. Verse 1 starts with, therefore, since the promise of entering. Verse 2 starts with, for, the good news. Verse 3 starts with, for, we who have believed. But so seriously, I encourage you, like, go and look up this chapter and just appreciate how many conjunctions the author uses in this whole chapter. The point here is that we can't really just, like, go back to verse 11 and then hope that that's going to give us the key to understanding verse 12. We really need to understand the whole arc of the book of Hebrews. So let's talk about the book of Hebrews for a second. It's a really interesting book, because unlike most of the other New Testament books, we don't actually know who wrote it. Historically, authorship has been assigned to Paul, but even as early as the second century, we have examples of people doubting whether Paul actually wrote it. Plenty of church fathers, including Eusebius, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and many more, doubted or even outright rejected direct Pauline authorship. And this is the nearly unanimous consensus of modern scholarship, namely that Paul didn't actually write the book of Hebrews. But while scholars are pretty confident about that, there really is no consensus on who did write the book. At this point, I think literally every single Christian figure from Barnabas to Aquila to Clement of Rome has been theorized as the author of Hebrews. Probably my favorite theory of authorship was put forward by Clement of Alexandria. He thought that Paul wrote the book originally in Aramaic, and then later it was translated into the Greek version that we now possess by Luke, which is great. It's just this mashup of the, the you know, two of the most prolific writers of the New Testament, Paul and Luke. It's, uh, it's just great. But Jeremy, do you have a personal theory that uh, for the authorship of Hebrews, or do you have like a really fun fun theory that, that, that you uh, appreciate? Yeah, I, I kind of follow Martin Luther here. I just think Apollos is a good answer. I don't know that he's more likely than anyone else, but um, in chapter 18 of Acts, you see Apollos described as an eloquent man who was competent in the scriptures, and he powerfully showed by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And uh, I think this really goes well with the themes of Hebrews about the superiority of Christ over the old covenant. And that was near and dear to Apollos' heart, just based on that text in Acts 18, um, he was a pretty major figure in the early church. I mean, he watered the seed that Paul planted in Corinth. Um, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians. And he didn't actually write a book of the Bible. Um, so I don't know. I just kind of I want to give a token gesture to Apollos. I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm rooting for him, I'll say. Although really it could be anyone. It could be Paul. Most um, may not think it is anymore, but we really don't know. Great. Yeah, I love that. Also, I love that flex that you did right there of like, yeah, I follow Martin Luther. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, Martin Luther wasn't right about everything, but but uh, Apollos is just a fun answer. I'll go with him on this one. Maybe not on the uh, doctrine of the Lord's Supper. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, we'll have to get into that another time. But for now, even though we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews, I think we can still ascertain what the purpose of the book of Hebrews is. Though the author doesn't really ever come out and directly say it anywhere. 
I think that it's pretty clear that the book of Hebrews is an apologetic work that's trying to prevent Jewish converts to Christianity from reverting back to their old Jewish religious practice. Now, in the first case, Hebrews has some of the scariest verses in the whole New Testament about apostasy. Uh, that is, falling away from the faith or you know, being a Christian and then turning away from that. You get verses like Hebrews 6, 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, and then later on, that if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, for they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Yeah, pretty fiery stuff, right? And then later in Hebrews 10, 28 and 29, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So clearly the author sees Jewish Christian apostasy as a huge possibility and a huge issue and is trying to warn believers against it. Wow, that was pretty fiery uh, language there, John. And I pictured you as Apollos uh, just saying that with such gumption. Yeah, yeah, standing in the synagogue or something, right? Well, hey, but the author does more than just this kind of fire and brimstone-y stuff. The book is actually pretty balanced in its warning, encouragement, and teaching. The book spends most of its time actually using the carrot rather than the stick in this respect, arguing that apostasy is a bad idea because Jesus is just, like, awesome, man. The author systematically works through Jewish religious practices and argues that Jesus both fulfills and supersedes all of them. For example, chapters 9 and 10 talk extensively about temple sacrifices, and these were integral to Jewish re religious worship. And the author argues that Jesus' death on the cross acts as the perfect sacrifice. In effect, the author is saying, you don't need the temple, you have Jesus. The author then goes on a lengthy retelling of Israel's history in Hebrews chapter 11, where all the faith of each of the Old Testament characters takes as its object not merely God in a general sense, but it's specifically Jesus. Here, Jeremy, would you read me Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 27? Sure thing. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward you see, the author's point here, it's not just that Jesus is this new thing that you Jews can get on board with if you want to, I guess. It's that Jesus has always been the whole point, and we're only just now realizing it. So, with that primer on Hebrews, let's circle back to the immediate context of 412. So, what aspect of Jewish religious worship is the author discussing in chapter 4? Jeremy, why don't you give us a quick rundown? Yeah, well, let's head back a little bit to chapter three, kind of where this section begins. Um, the author's warning against apostasy, like you were saying earlier, is a, a major theme of this book. And in this case, the author uses historical examples in the nation of Israel as an example of what that apostasy looks like and what its results are. So it's kind of, in a sense, the opposite of what we later see in chapter 11 with all of the by faith this person did this, this person did this. This is what the opposite of faith looks like back here in chapter three. Um, and so the author is going to give us a quotation of the 95th Psalm, and he's then going to proceed to unpack and explain that Psalm in this present context that the 
recipients of the book of Hebrews we're dealing with. So let's read this together in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11, quoting Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, that's God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this passage here is quoting Psalm 95, as I mentioned before, but Psalm 95 itself is already a reference back to a historical event from all the way back in Exodus. Um, And this is at Meribah, um, which is the place where God commanded Moses to strike the rock so that waters would come out. Not the place where Moses struck the rock where he wasn't commanded to, mind you, not to be confused. This time God was actually commanding Moses to strike the rock because the people were quarreling against God because of their thirst. So basically they weren't, they weren't trusting God to bring them into this promised land, which is here referred to as my rest, God's rest. But the people rebelled against God. They refused to trust him for provision. And so because of their persistent rebellion, those of you who remember the story, Meribah was hardly, um, you know, one example of this. There was many rebellions along the way. Um, and so basically God refused to let anyone from that generation enter the land. He forced them to wander in the desert. And they actually, that generation of people, as it says in Hebrews 3, um, that generation didn't get to see the land because of it. They didn't enter the rest of God properly. So, I mean, this passage shows that God takes rebellion very seriously, um, but also, um, moreover, just this idea of the rest of God, which is later going to be continued in chapter 4, that we can fail to enter that rest if we choose to not trust God and his provision. Yeah, thanks for that recap, Jeremy. So what's really interesting here in the book of Hebrews is not so much that the author is like retelling the story of Exodus, because, you know, as Jeremy just said, that that's a thing that happens all time, all the time in, you know, Psalm 95, it's David who's retelling the story of Exodus. And so then in Hebrews, we're getting the author of Hebrews retelling what David said, who's retelling what happened in Exodus. And so, you know, Mary Shelley would be proud of how many times this story is being framed. Um, but what's what's really interesting here specifically is the way that the author is using the story of Exodus. Now, there's two things that I'd like to highlight, which are going to bring us back to Hebrews 4.12. So point number one, the reason that the people were denied entry into, quote, God's rest is really interesting. The author clarifies this reason in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, where the author asks a series of rhetorical questions. Here, I'll, I'll quote, starting in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here we see the author of Hebrews indicting the ancient Israelites for four things. There's rebellion, sin, disobedience, and unbelief. And the tone of the text is very much that these four are really kind of the same thing. In fact, during the rest of chapter 4, the author uses disobedience and unbelief basically interchangeably, kind of linking the two ideas together. So, really, kind of what's the point here? 
The point is that there is this unbelief which is connected with disobedience, sin, and rebellion, which disqualifies someone from entering God's rest. And this brings us to point number two. Well, what is this rest, actually? What is God's rest? And how is it connected with the promised land, which is really what most of the discussion in originally the story of Exodus is about? This is actually a a super deep topic that we don't have anywhere near enough time to talk about right now. And perhaps we'll do a full episode on it later. So for right now, I'm just going to scratch the surface. The author of Hebrews is highlighting that when God promised to bring the Israelites into Canaan, into the land, God was offering more than just a chunk of earth or a chunk of dirt. He was offering to give them peace, give them prosperity, and to, through them and that prosperity, bless the rest of the world. If you want a good synopsis of this point, Moses kind of lays the whole thing out in Deuteronomy 28. And it is that state of peace with God, which really is in view here in Hebrews 4, more than the literal ground of the promised land that the author is talking about. The author uses this to argue that because the Israelites were denied entry into God's rest, that promise of rest is still out there, that promise of peace, and it's waiting to be apprehended. God purposes to give that rest to the members of the new covenant who have been joined with Christ. You know, I think the author really does a better job of explaining this whole thing than I do. Jeremy, would you read me Hebrews 4, verses 6 through 11? Yeah, since therefore it remains for some to enter that rest, God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, God appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we come to the verse right before Hebrews 4.12. And what is it talking about? Well, it's warning us. Don't be like the Israelites. They were continually disobedient and rebellious toward God because of their hard hearts. And as a result, God prevented them from entering his rest. And if we follow their example, we will also be barred from entering God's rest. So when we turn to Hebrews 4.12, the opening word for in for the word of God is living and active, it's linked to the verse right before it. And so it's linked to this idea that one is able to fail to enter the Sabbath rest of God because of unbelief. So with that context, let's listen once more to Hebrews 4.12 and then also to verse 13 right after it. Jeremy, would you read it for us? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right, so let's narrow in on Hebrews 4.12, now that we've got the context, and we see that the verse is really saying that there's four things that are true about the Word of God. So the first thing is that we're told that the Word of God is living and active. Now, this is a really potent image where, you know, we don't have a dry or 
dead or passive document. It's not like a piece of paper that you can just choose to take it or leave it. It's really that scripture here is being seen as a living, breathing agent who takes initiative in people's lives. Now, it's interesting, there's actually two other New Testament references to the Word of God being alive. One of them's in Acts 7.38, where it's called, where Scripture's called a living oracles. And then again, in 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 23, we get that the Word of God, which lives and abides. And so they're all kind of trying to illustrate the same point, that the Word of God is really, it's active and capable of accomplishing the thing that it's set out to do. Now, the second phrase is that the Word of God is called as sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, the phrase two-edged sword is really interesting here, and it shows up in a couple other places in Scripture, which we'll look at here. First, we have Psalm 149. The two-edged sword is the instrument of judgment on wicked nations. To quote, Let the high praises of God be in their throats, and two-edged swords in their hands, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. Then, in Proverbs 5, the two-edged sword is seen as the destruction which is wrought from adultery. To quote here, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, and her steps follow the path to Sheol. Then, other than here in the New Testament, we see twice in Revelation, the two-edged sword is used again in the context of judging wickedness. So, the two-edged sword is the image kind of of this totally consuming judgment. In a pretty literal sense, it like cuts both ways, so to speak. Coming back here to Hebrews 4, the context actually is also judgment, specifically the judgment of the Israelites who were disobedient in their unbelief. So here we see that scripture, it's, it's not just that it's active, as we saw in the previous phrase, but the thing that it's active in doing is in judging wickedness. Further, it isn't just called a two-edged sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's really to, you know, drive the point home here. Pardon the pun. But furthermore, I, I mean, like, <laughs> your awful pun aside, John, I mean, that's a good point. So what we were talking about this whole time is, you know, maybe this passage isn't so much this triumphalist kind of like, yeah, I'm going to go cut all my foes down with the word. But perhaps we're actually intended to see this as, no, God cuts us down with his word and judges his own people. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think that's an excellent point. And that kind of leads in a little bit to the next phrase here is uh, clarifying kind of that idea of cutting. See here, we see the next phrase is that the word of God, it also pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. So the image of the sword is really clarified here. This sword isn't just a a hack and slash wantonly type, but there is a level of finesse that's associated with the cuts that it takes. The word is seen here to cut so deeply and so precisely that it can separate joints and even divide soul and spirit. In this way, I think we're better served imaging the word of God as a scalpel rather than like a big two-handed Scottish claymore. And the author's really highlighting that the word of God cuts open more than it really cuts down the wicked in judgment. Though, to be clear, it also does totally cut down, as you see in Ephesians 6. And that brings us to the last phrase here, that the word of God, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In this way, the Word of God, it's fundamentally diagnostic. 
it divides and pierces and cuts through everything to access the human heart, to open up the intentions and desires within. And this is all coming on the heels of a story about Israel's judgment for unbelief. So I find this whole verse incredibly sobering. In verse 11, we're exhorted to make every effort to enter God's rest and to not fall by following their, that is Israel's, example of disobedience. And here in verse 12, we're told that the word of God judges our hearts to reveal if we are faithful or if we're rebellious. And when I look into the mirror of God's word, I find that my heart is revealed to be lacking. The word of God commands me to love the Lord with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength. It commands me to love my neighbor as myself. And by doing so, it shows me that in my heart, I still harbor rebellion against God's rule. I still harbor hardness and hatred toward my neighbor. I am pierced by the word. On my own merits, I cannot enter God's rest. Well, thankfully, though, John, uh, the, the message doesn't stop there. And I think this is the beautiful thing about Hebrews. Um, I know you're passionate about this with this book as well. But uh, we can't stop at 4.12 and 4.13. But moving on to verse 14, we have an answer for this judgment that, that cuts to our hearts. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The truth, John, is that in and of ourselves, none of us can enter God's rest. We need Christ. He grants us the strength to hold fast our confession. And I find that particularly interesting that it says our confession. In other words, what we believe in. Jesus Christ, our high priest, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And through Jesus Christ, of course, uh, we still may disobey, but, but overall we're victorious. Overall, we will be kept fast through him, and so that we can enter that rest. We can come before God, we can be given grace, and through that, we are able to continue believing in God. Even our belief doesn't come from our own hearts as though we had some sort of merit that allowed us to see the beauty of Christ uh, that others don't have. But, but even that belief comes from God. And so we need to draw near to his throne so that we can truly enter that rest that God promised to his people all the way back in Exodus. It's time for the other meat. So with that, let's jump into some practical applications that we can really take away from these verses. So I think one application that we can bring, our first one here, is that we're really called to put ourselves under the scrutiny of God's word. God's word is God's instrument to convict us of our sin, and we must be sensitive and responsive to that conviction. God's word is good, and it must have its rule in our, in our lives. So I encourage you to look deeply at God's word, and in turn to open yourself up to having it look deeply at you. Yeah, John, I think that's a great point. And of course, the, the verse says the word of God is alive and active. So to be open to being examined by the word of God and allowing it to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart 
is a lot more interesting and engaging of a process than I suppose like like reading the Constitution over and over again or like getting involved in law. Um, there's there's a lot more. Jeremy, like, are you trying to say that the Constitution isn't a living document? <laughs> All right. Politics aside, I'm not a member of the Supreme Court, and I'm not gonna gonna give my judicial opinions. But but all that aside, um, no, I just I'm just trying to make the point that that God's Word is full of lots of different genres, um, and it is alive and active, um, and it's it's there, and the Holy Spirit empowers us when we read it to be convicted of our sin, just in a way that's more deep um, than you're ever going to find in any other document. So this is an exciting process. It sounds lame when we talk about like conviction of sin. It sounds like it's, you know, um, perhaps boring or just kind of drab. But I mean, I I don't find it that way. A second point that we could use for application here is that I, I think this verse is really calling us to live in vigilance. In Exodus, we see that Israel, they saw God's power in Egypt. They saw God's power at the Red Sea and in the desert, but yet they still turned away. They were still, they still had hard hearts and they were still disobedient. And I think this tells us that we also can't be relying on anything that's in the past, any past experiences that we've had, but rather we really need to be clinging tightly and daily to Jesus. We need to be continually, as it says, holding fast to our conviction and to be vigilant to see that through. Yeah, John. I mean, I think, I know it's really common for Christians to have this experience where we look to some event in the past, some like spiritual mountain or high place where we would just, we were really on fire for God or we just really felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, and those, there are those amazing moments in a Christian's life, but I think just the daily discipline of, uh, you know, following Jesus and obedience to God's word and prayer and weekly church attendance and forgiveness and, and, and repentance uh, to the people close to us who, you know, who we sin against and just those daily activities, which often don't have a whole lot of feeling or bursts of emotion to them is a really important part of, of um, just living in vigilance, as you said, following Jesus. And point number three here, I think, is in addition to that vigilance, we also really need to be living in humility. As, you know, we've talked about before, we all still sin. You know, perfection isn't for this life. But when we do, we should confess and repent. We should turn back to God. Uh, again, I think the author, by highlighting and, and sort of using the words disobedience and unbelief interchangeably, is really highlighting that it's not about a particular instance of disobedience toward what God has commanded, but it's this persistent state of unbelief, this hardness of your heart that you're being that uh, is what disqualifies you from entering God's rest. And so, I think we should really live in humility and understand that. Even if we are disobedient, the focus should be on not be not uh, rejecting unbelief. Yeah, John, and I think that's a great point, given what we were talking about earlier um, with those really scary kind of hellfire and brimstone passages in the book of Hebrews. Um, it's important to keep in mind that for the author of Hebrews, um, disobedience isn't just like stumbling, isn't just, you know, sinning, because we all do sin. In 1 John, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So, Perfection isn't for this life, like you said. Um, so I think we should understand these passages in Hebrews to be guiding us to the right path more than condemning us 
every time we sin, and, and we should lean on Jesus Christ, who is our apostle and high priest, for to, you know, to find our way back to that path if we feel like we're falling away from Christ, um, and, and perhaps not spending time with him like we ought. Yeah, and then to round this out a little bit with point number four here, um, what we've said so far is a lot of pretty personal uh, things about, you know, confessing your sins and, and turning and clinging to Christ. But it, one thing that's really interesting about the passage is that the example that the author of Hebrews uses is the disobedience of the entire generation of Israel, that it was this community of faith that was marked by unbelief. And I think that there is an undercurrent of that that comes into this verse as well, that is encouraging us to be participating fully in our church communities, that we should be investing ourselves in true communities of belief, because that's where our encouragement is going to come from. God is the one who's given us these community of believers, these churches, to be part of and to serve as that encouragement to keep us on God's path. As the author of Hebrews says later in the book, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This church, the church, is the community where God transforms our hearts, so that when God's word does reveal our hearts, it will reveal them to be more like Christ's. Yeah, and I think... On this point, too, this episode is going out kind of in the midst of the coronavirus lockdowns. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't able to meet together as as they normally are. And it, it varies depending on, you know, the laws where you're at. And so I would just encourage you, um, if you're not able to meet together as you normally would at church, reach out to a brother or sister. Um, if you can, try to meet up in, in person. If you In your conscience, it's safe to do so and you're okay with that. Um, even if you're not able to meet together in large gatherings, we can still be the church to one another. Um, we can still love one another and can, you know, consider how we can spur one another on. That's true. And we're able to do that no matter what our circumstances are. God has promised to be with his people. And finally, for point five, I, I think there's another application here that is really that we should just be rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit who he is the one who does that transformation in our hearts through the means of the church and God's word. It's through his guidance that we will make it through the desert of temptation and trial and sin and rebellion, and that we will eventually be brought into the promised Sabbath rest of God. So I encourage you, don't despise the spirit when he guides you, when he leads you, when he corrects you, but welcome him and draw near to him. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself, John. It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, that takes us to the end of our section on Hebrews 4.12. Now, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things Paul says, and I would also add the author of Hebrews says, which are hard to understand. But both Paul and Apollos, or whoever wrote Hebrews, said plenty of things which are, in fact, easy to understand. So let's sit for a moment and reflect on the simple wisdom of Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So this is just a great reminder um, 
in light with what we were just saying about the application, how we need to do this in community, it's important to encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today. Uh, Today, if we hear his voice, it's important that we do not harden our hearts as they did so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if we encourage one another and we walk daily with Christ. And that's simple, easy to understand. Um, Doesn't need any more explanation than that. Let's do that. Let's encourage one another. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. I mean, alternatively, if you liked what you heard, you have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions that you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That is thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.